Good evening, everyone. Before we start with our um, program, with our um, discussion of a God of love in a world full of suffering, um, as we did last week, we want to acknowledge that this series is co-sponsored by the Samuel Bronfman Foundation in memory of Edgar Bronfman. And as we did last week, we're going to have someone who was close with Edgar share just a brief memory um, and reflection on Edgar's relationship to the topics at hand. So it's a great privilege for me to introduce someone who is a teacher to many of the faculty here and was actually in many ways a mentor to Edgar Bronfman, Rabbi Michael Paley. And we're going to talk about my friend and uh, uh, mentor and even patron, uh, Edgar Bronfman. I met Edgar Bronfman 35 years ago. I'm um, completely so interested. Oh, sure, thanks. Um, somebody came and asked me to come to lunch. Um, bored, only half the people lunch that I understand I was being vetted um, to be a lunch guest with uh, Edgar Bronfman. Um, and then uh, a couple days later, um, I was ushered into the Seagram building, um, into this very elegant uh, dining room to meet Edgar Bronfman. Um, it was like around uh, 1 o'clock in the afternoon. We started having lunch, um, and we immediately began to drink. Um, uh, he was, after all, the chairman of the secret company. And, we, and I, had, I had found out what drink he liked. Um, I, myself, wasn't prepared to drink at 1 o'clock um, in the afternoon, not being my practice. Um, and so I can't really report much about our first meeting because, you know, of course I can't remember. But, um, uh, uh, but I do... I, I, the impressions were so powerful. You know, we, we didn't have that much in common. You know, I was the Hill director at Dartmouth. He was the CEO of a major corporation. Um, uh, he, I, I came to New York and he flew me down in his plane. I didn't actually have my own plane. Um, uh, <coughs> uh, he was um, constantly directing people um, in the Seagram world during the things, and, and I was trying to have a conversation. And, and, and we just, you know, and yet he was totally open, um, engaged, and became a friend. And he became a friend quite quickly. He became um, almost the epitome of the phrase that we used to sometimes study together, which is a sailor harab kanel chachaber. Make yourself a teacher and acquire yourself a friend. And right from the beginning, he said, you know, I, I, I found so friendly towards you. Can you teach me something about friendship? That was like almost the first or second time I met him. And I remember um, going through my mind, what texts did I know about friendship? There aren't that many texts in the Torah about friendship. Um, in fact, shockingly little, and I do remember doing that. And the other thing was he was a full-on skeptic. Um, probably if you came last week, um, you heard, um, who, who spoke? James Daniel Seth. Um, uh, say he was a skeptic, he was a kind of an atheist, and, and yet he was deeply and fast, deeply interested and fascinated with everything Jewish, everything. You know, he was the, then the head of the World Jewish Congress. Um, I asked him why he was the head of the World Jewish Congress, he says, because it doesn't have a real board and you can't get fired no matter what you do. That's cool. You know, like he said, just put my card to the table. If I want to do this for the rest of my life, I will. Um, I said, how do you know that? He says, because I supply most of the money. So, you know, that was, that was like right out there. He was like always completely honest and he was open and funny and, and great food and fantastic scotch. Um, um, eating lunch with him was a bit of a trial by ordeal. You had to have these finger bowls and and silverware that you didn't know what they were, and, and he would just watch you to see if you actually knew how to eat lunch. Um, and so I remember the second or third time I met him, um, I prepared myself by asking a person to teach me 
how to eat lunch in a fancy formal way. Um, uh, I don't want to go on. I want to say one more thing about him. How's that? Um, uh, I have to check with the guy. Um, uh, uh, Edgar wrote a number of books um, in his life. Um, the last one he wrote really was just finished before he died is Why Be Jewish? A Testament. He always cared about this question. Why be Jewish? He says, like if you believe in God and you think that God is telling you what to do, the answer of why be Jewish, it's obvious, right? You, God's telling you what to do, you do it, and, uh, and that's the bargain. But if you don't believe in God, um, but you deeply want to be a Jew, why do it? And so he committed himself to study, and in a kind of a roses like the world to Torah away, he reinterpreted everything. Um, and I remember some years into it, he, he wanted to um, study Jewish art and symbol. He was then courting Jan Aronson, an artist, and he wanted to talk to her about Jewish art. Um, I went down to the, to the um, Four Seasons dining room, and I tried to analyze the art in the dining room as Jewish or not Jewish. So it was really quite a wonderful moment. And he said, um, what were some of the Jewish pieces of art? And, and I told him about the breastplate of the high priest, um, the, and the apron, which, has, as people know, has uh, 12 stones in it. Um, and he actually adopted that to a little bit. Um, and he said that it was um, the image that he wanted as he put his own um, Jewish values together. He would do 12 of them. And he says, once I established a number of tenants because of the stones on the apron, um, I, would include in, I, I would include a step to work. My only rule was everything on my list must be extrapolated from Jewish text, history, or tradition. All the principles on the list are written in verbal, in verb form, specifying with the Jewish emphasis on deed over creed. Deed over creed. He said that thousands of times. That these are things to do, not things to just believe. And here they are, 12. Revere godliness, the true, the good, and the beautiful. Ask questions. Commit to repairing the outer and inner world. Perform acts of loving kindness. Assist society's weakest members. Champion social justice and environmental causes. Welcome the stranger. Engage with Jewish traditions, text, philosophy, history, and art. Study and strive for excellence in the humanities and other secular fields. Promote family and community. Embrace key Jewish holidays and life cycle events, and conduct business ethically. Well, that's a that's a pretty good list. He once I once asked him why he was so interested in Passover. He said, because it's about freeing slaves. He was surprised anybody cared about the slaves at all. Hmm. That was a pretty good insight for me. Um, those twelve concepts, uh, uh, I think, we're entering a period of, of American history that they may become more and more of a challenge. And uh, so I can't think of anybody better to hearken up right now than uh, Edgar Bronson as we head off into that era. So I hope that you'll keep his memory as a blessing. Thank you, Michael. Thank you. Hi. I'm Rabbi Avi Killa, but I want to thank everyone again. I'm honored to have the opportunity to moderate this discussion tonight. Our task tonight is to think about faith and doubt and the role that love has to play in questions of faith and doubt. And we have exactly the right two people here with us to have that conversation. Um, so I'll start with introductions. Thomas J. Ord is a theologian, philosopher, and scholar of multidisciplinary studies. He is the author or editor of more than 20 books and professor at Northwest Nazarene University in Tampa, Idaho. Ord is known for his contributions to research on love, relational theology, and science and religion. 
And as many of you know, Rabbi Shai Held is a theologian, scholar, and educator, and co-founder, dean, and chair of Jewish thought here at Makon Hadar. His next book is about the centrality of love and compassion in Jewish ethics and spirituality. So I have a number of questions I want to ask each of you. You each have on your seat a, an index card and a pencil. So I invite you, as you think of questions um, throughout the conversation, to, to just jot your questions down. And if you lift up the card, there are some people who will come and collect the cards. And I can tell you now, we will not get to answer all of the questions, but I hope that we will get to answer some of your questions. Um, I want to start with a question that I'd like each of you to answer. How does one open a conversation about God in a world largely closed off to the possibility of transcendence? And I think maybe Shai will start with you. Okay. I always like to begin with small, easy yes or no questions. Is this actually on? Is this actually on? You hear it? Okay, great. Um, so, an image that I think about a lot um, is an image from the philosopher Charles Taylor who talks about how in the pre-modern world, people had what was called a porous self. That is, a person was fundamentally and in all kinds of ways open to realities and to meanings that came from outside and to obligations that came from outside. And in the modern world, Taylor suggests, we actually have what he calls a buffered self, which essentially means a self that is largely self-contained, that imagines it's the author of its own meaning, and that it is the source of its own authority. So in many ways, um, at the risk of descending into a caricature of a philosopher, I think the question is, how does one restore a sense of porousness in a buffered world? How does one create openings in the self to the possibility of connecting to something transcendent? And I think the way that I would answer that, um, which I want to stipulate at first, I am keenly aware that it would not work for everyone. But I, I want to suggest... I'm borrowing a phrase from the sociologist Peter Berger that there are experiences in life that are signals of transcendence, that on some level, if we open ourselves fully to them, suggest some reality beyond the quotidian day-to-day -day reality we normally inhabit. Now, m my examples of that are totally different than Berger's, and I'll just share very, very quickly three of them. Um, and I'm conscious that I'm now squandering the lecture I was going to give in two weeks. But um, I'll give it again. Um, so one of them is, I have often found myself wondering how it is that many of us are moved to protest injustice and are animated by a sense that the world as it is is not as it is intended to be. Where does that vision of as it is intended to be come from? Where does the confidence that it's wrong to abuse people, that it's wrong to degrade mm, them, mm. that it's wrong to view them you know, as less than fully human. Where does the confidence that it's not, I don't like this, but I believe that it is intended to be otherwise, mm. that to me is a kind of signal of transcendence, a confidence mm. that another reality is real in some way. Again, I want to be clear, that is not an argument for the existence of God. It is an experience that generates an intuition of the possibility of transcendence. Another perhaps related example, this is something that in my own life I have to say, in, in moments 
where I have you know, huge metaphysical doubt, which means as I get older, in more and more moments, um, my experience of human dignity and the claims it makes on me, I have no reductionist, materialist explanation for what that could possibly mean and where it comes from. You, you can't hear, I'm sorry. So I said, when I experience the reality of human dignity and the claim I experience making on me, I have no explanation, no way to make sense of that in a materialist, reductionist world. Um, I can tell you what an evolutionary biologist might say it means, but I don't find it particularly compelling. Um, and, and finally, and also related, um, the sense that moral obligation is objectively real. That, in fact, it's not that I can't be unfaithful to my wife because those are not values that I like. Or I can't kill someone because, you know, those are not things that I personally approve of. The sense that there is a truth about obligation that is built into the fabric of the world is, to me, a signal of transcendence. So since Avi asked the question, you know, how would you open up the possibility of transcendence in a world close to it, my impulse in those moments is always to ask people about experiences that, to me, signal something greater than the day-to-day reality around me. That's how I begin such a conversation. That doesn't get me all the way to a person of God of revelation and Torah and mitzvot, but it gets me to the possibility that maybe already I'm tapped into something that far transcends me and far transcends the reality I inhabit on a daily basis. Wow. That's good stuff. <laughs> uh, first of all, I, I want to say thanks to Shai and Hadar for inviting me here, and thanks to all of you for coming out this evening. I, I appreciate that. Um, it's an honor for me to come all the way from Idaho to New York City. It's a little bit different here than in Idaho. I don't know if some of you know that. Um, this first question about transcendence and what sorts of ways that uh, we might be inclined to think about the possibility of God and something beyond our personal experience. Many of the ideas I was going to run with have to do with morals and have to do with uh, this sense of the ought and where that comes from. But I think since you covered that quite a bit, I think I'll go a slightly different direction, although some of what I have to say will, will piggyback on you what you've said. I think that all of us, well, maybe that's too strong, almost all of us, want to make some sense out of life. We want to make some sense out of this life we live and the world in which we live. Now, sometimes that making some sense is kind of mundane, you know, um, trying to make sense of why my wife uh, woke up early this morning or why the uh, Patriots seem to year after year have such a great team. Actually, I know the, the answer to that one, but I won't go into that. Why do things happen? That's the question of making sense out of reality. And that question drives me, and I think most people, to go beyond answers that we might say are nothing but what I have in my head and what science tells me about the world. Nothing but my own experience and materialism. That's what some philosophers call nothing buttery. 
the idea that everything can be explained by the principles of science and my own particular experience as a flesh and blood person. I think this calling almost, this drive to make sense out of the world beckons many of us, maybe not all of us, but many of us to ask the questions of God and ask the question of meaning. How do we make sense out of our lives and can science give us the whole explanation? I don't think science can. I think we look for some sort of purpose, some sort of meaning, and those, the, that adventure for finding answers and making sense out of life pulls us beyond ourselves to the questions of values, right and wrong, the questions <clears throat> of beauty, the questions of meaning, and questions of purpose. Thank you both so much. So we started with this place of how do you, how do you open up to the questions? Um, and I want to push you each a little bit further to say, how, what about when we have the question, maybe you're open to the question, how do we find answers to those questions? So the, you know, the concrete frame I think that I'll offer is, you know, if you imagine that a young person were to come to you who says, you know, I was raised not anti-religious, but non-religious. Um, you know, I've never really felt like faith was an option that was open to me, but I'm open to being convinced. You know, what do you say to that person? And, and I would add, you know, are, is your answer to that person, does it, uh, does it draw on traditional proofs of God from philosophy, or is your answer coming from somewhere maybe entirely different? You mean to start? Yeah. I had the good fortune of uh, growing up in a family in which the language about God was right at the center. I had pretty good parents. I'm a Christian. I attended church often. My parents were involved in the church. And my reality revolved around the idea that God exists and is active in my life. I went off to college as someone who would probably annoy you very much. I was a person who went door to door as an evangelist. I knocked on the door, people opened the door, and I said, Hi, I'm Tom. Can I talk to you about Jesus Christ? Most of the time, the door quickly shut. I was so bold in my evangelistic techniques that I would go to bars and sit down next to people and strike up conversations. I was a part of a very uh, evangelistic group in the Christian tradition called Campus Crusade for Christ. And I shared what's called the four spiritual laws to lead people to a decision to become a Christian. I was gung-ho. Then I took a class in philosophy of religion. And for the first time in my life, I read stuff from very smart people, some of them atheists, some of them from other religious traditions. And the reasons I had for believing in God and for being a Christian no longer made sense to me. I remember vividly showing up one afternoon to pick up my fiance, who's now my wife, her getting into the car, me turning to her and saying, I just can't believe in God anymore. All my reasons for being a theist, for being a believer, don't hold up. I was an atheist, but actually for not that long. 
I was an atheist for less than a year. I, was an, I, I emerged out of my atheism because I would not let these issues go. I wasn't ready to settle for despair. I wanted to find if there was some possibility for meaning in the world. And slowly, I began to build a case for why it's more plausible, not certain, but more plausible than not to me that God exists. To this day, I'm not certain there's a God. But I think it's more plausible than not that there is. So one of the things I would say to a person in this, asking this kind of question is I would, I would suggest to them that there are three general positions to think about faith and doubt. One on the far, my far left, your far right, is the idea that we can be absolutely certain about God and everything that God is about. The absolute certainty that as a, a child I thought was the mature stance. The other side is what I'll call blind faith having no real reasons or evidence or arguments for God's existence, but just willy-nilly deciding to believe. The position I want to suggest for a person asking this question is some, somewhere in the middle that brings together arguments, evidence, and makes a plausible case for the possibility of God's existence, all the while not knowing with absolute certainty if there's a God. Maybe I'll stop there. Um, something that has become really important to me the older I've gotten is, I'll say this in philosophies and then in English, um, is really abandoning the project of apologetic theology and instead embracing the project of confessional theology. Hmm. Apologetic theology is essentially an attempt to construct arguments for why someone ought to believe. Confessional theology is essentially telling a story of what the world looks like from inside a perspective of faith. Hmm. The second perspective is far less ambitious, but also to me much more honest. What I mean by that is essentially this. If someone asks me this question, my answer is essentially some version of the following. I would like to describe to you the pair of glasses that I wear as I walk through the world. I would even like to invite you to imagine what the world looks like when it's seen through those lenses. If those lenses are compelling to you, you are welcome to them. Nice. If they are not, well then, life is complex, and we don't all see the world the same way. Hmm. Confessional theology strikes me as much more humble and aware of the limits of what we're capable of. In a funny way, by the way, for those of you interested in modern Jewish thought, this is actually something that, although it may be surprising to say this, Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik was in many ways, at moments at least, among the most liberal Jewish theologians of the 20th century. The beginning of The Lonely Man of Faith is essentially about this. You're welcome to take a look. If you don't like it, I won't be offended. After all, it's my glasses. Abraham Joshua Heschel was quite the opposite, right? It was enormously important for his faith to convince everyone that they were a believer. He needed that very badly, as I've tried to point out um, in my writing about him. Um, as to whether I would invoke the proofs for God's existence, so maybe we could talk about this later. I don't find the proofs compelling as proofs, and as a religious person, I'm very grateful for that. However, I do think that the so-called proofs 
are often expressions of intuitions that are worth exploring, mm -hmm. right? Like the cosmological argument, the argument from a first cause. A, I don't think that's a compelling argument, and B, a first cause is religiously totally insignificant, right? First cause doesn't love me, doesn't ask anything of me. However, the argument from a first cause may be an expression of, one, of what one philosopher calls cosmological wonder. Why is there anything? Why is there something rather than nothing? What happens when I sit inside not just that question, but the experience of the way that question just throws me and turns my whole world um, into something unfamiliar all over again? So as proofs, I don't find them interesting. But as, as over-ambitious translations of intuitions, I actually find them um, quite interesting. I want to say one last thing about this, and here I hope you will all not not come back in two weeks. <laughs> I don't think that people ask the question of God the way most philosophy textbooks and freshman philosophy classes ask them. People do not start out saying, hmm, I wonder if there's a first cause. <laughs> and they consider all the arguments for, all the arguments against, and decide, okay, now I'm an atheist and now I'm a theist. In fact, what we do is identify a story about human life that makes sense to us and in which we can find and situate ourselves. Mm. Right? Richard Dawkins has a story about human life. Some people find it convincing. I do not find it convincing in the least bit. I don't find it a story I can live inside of. To me, the question of you know, belief in God is at the end of the day, um, I'm not always sure I'm right about this, but at the end of the day, it's not about, okay, I've weighed all the evidence in my world and it came out 5149, so I'm a believer. It's actually, what story about human life do I find myself a plausible subject in? It's a very different way of thinking what it means to be a religious person. I think it's much truer to how people actually tend to make those decisions. So I have a follow-up question that I think, Shai, you, you actually touched on, but, but I would like to also give you Tom a chance to answer, which is, um, given that you're both philosophers and people of faith, um, is there a difference for you in the God of philosophy and the God of relationship? You know, are they the same? I think, Shai, you were starting to touch on that if you want to well, Tom can go first, and then I'll... So this question is often phrased uh, with the assumption that the god of philosophy is the god talked about by Aristotle, Plato, and some of those folks. And uh, some of you aren't ph philosophers, so you probably don't really care what that means. But um, in essence, the god of philosophy seemed to be uh, uninvolved, impersonal, disengaged. Uh, Aristotle called God the unmoved mover. Somehow God is the one who makes things happen but is never influenced and affected by us. This God isn't really a part of the story or a story. This God just is and there's some rational or philosophical way we affirm this God. I actually like philosophy. <laughs> I just don't think that notion of God philosophically is the most compelling. <coughs> I affirm a relational form of philosophy. I think God is a relational being. I think God is involved in the giving and receiving of relationship with us and all creation. That God is a God of love who loves everyone all the time, human and non-human. 
And this God is influenced by what happens. This God weeps when we weep and, and rejoices when we rejoice. This can all be explained philosophically with a different kind of philosophy, but often that version of philosophy is one that people don't know and don't recognize as one possible God of the philosophers. If we use that kind of a philosophical or metaphysical foundation, I can start to work with things. Now, it doesn't probably go all the way that I want to go. I'm a Christian, by the way, so it's not just some sort of philosophical notion of God that I affirm. I'm a Christian because I like something about Jesus Christ that's really important to me. Um, other folks from other traditions can affirm that relational God, but then have that fit, uh, the God of their tradition can fit more uniquely and distinctly. Uh, but uh, for me, fundamentally, it's not a problem of the God of the philosophers. It's a problem of a particular vision of God among some philosophers. Um, yeah, I, you know, something that is very important to me um, as a philosopher, but more importantly as a Jew, um, is to recognize and acknowledge that there will always be a very significant gap between what I'll call scriptural covenantal faith on the one hand and abstract philosophical monotheism on the other. Hmm. That is, that the God of the Torah is never going to be Aristotle's first cause. Mm -hmm. And one of the great dangers of medieval Jewish philosophy and Christian philosophy and Islamic philosophy is that what masquerades as synthesis is in fact surrender. Hmm. That by the time many medieval philosophers are done synthesizing, quote unquote, the Hebrew Bible and Aristotle's philosophy, lo and behold, the God of the Bible is Aristotle's first cause. <laughs> See, yeah. guide of the perplexed. Um, no, I mean, really, that's true. Um, now, so does that mean that philosophy has no place in a Jewish understanding of God? I think it means that one engages in a dialectical relationship where philosophy critiques and asks hard questions about what we mean when we say God. If I say God loves, philosophy asks a question how are you using language in that situation? Hmm. What do you mean by God? What do you mean by loves? And when you say loves, do you mean loves the same way that if you say Tom Word loves? There's a million questions that philosophy forces me to confront so that when I talk about a personal God, I remember that I'm not talking about a big person in the sky. Mm, yeah. um, and I'll say like one of the things that I personally find very hard about some contemporary Jewish conversations, I see this a lot, among some kinds of liber liberal rabbis and liberal Jewish thinkers, a wildly, they begin often with a wildly non-empathic presentation of what traditional theism is. You hear this a lot. You've probably all heard sermons where someone will get up and say, well, my God is not the big old grandpa in the sky. <laughs> and then they're off to the races at some radically alternative conception of God. That's fine, except I would like to say no Jewish thinker has ever held anything like remotely a grandfather in the sky. And since we're actually committed to empathy as a value, can we do some work in imagining more sympathetically what a traditional conception of God looks like? Hmm. Just as one might ask for the opposite. Um, so philosophy plays a role, but it is not a God before whom one bows down. I just will say very quickly, in conclusion, I actually am very sympathetic to what Tom said, which is for much of the history of Judaism, philosophy in thinking about God was understood essentially 
by a bunch of assumptions that were dominant in Greek philosophy. Right. That, you know, perfection involved stasis, right? Just, it's like being static. That doesn't strike me as perfection at all. Perfection has to do with dynamism. Perfection has to do with a willingness to engage. And a willingness to engage means that something might happen that changes me. So it might be that instead of a contrast between religion on the one hand and sort of you know, metaphysics on the other, we can say religion rejects Greek metaphysics and maybe all embraces a different metaphysics right. where dynamism is at the heart of being. I like that. Thank you both. I, um, I want to play another round of things that may seem like they don't, don't go together and hear your thoughts. <laughs> um, and we'll take, you know, with the title of this series, right, is just Faith and Doubt. It sounds like, oh, these are two opposite ends of a spectrum. Um, and I want to ask you each to talk a little bit about doubt and the role of doubt. Um, and I think it would be great if you would speak both personally about the role of doubt in your own theology and also more generally in terms of the role of doubt in a life of faith. Can we start? Go ahead. Yeah. Wow. Um, so let me start maybe by saying this. In my experience and as I've grown older in my philosophy, faith and doubt are not contrasts but companions. Mm, yeah. um, that is to say, I don't think that a philosopher who takes philosophy seriously can not at some point, and at many points probably, wrestle with the reality that there may not be a God. More than that, I don't think anyone who walks through the world with their eyes open cannot at some point wrestle with the very real possibility that there is no God. So faith and doubt go together because the seal of God is truth. And I think the truth of human experience is such that there are good reasons to believe and good reasons not to believe. And we live in a fundamentally ambiguous universe. Um, now, I want to take, a, if I could, an, another step, which is, it was um, philosopher Soren Kierkegaard who says something I think is astonishingly powerful. Um, had medieval philosophical attempts to prove the existence of God worked, they would have destroyed the very possibility of faith. Because after all, to have faith is to stake your life on something you don't definitively know. If it's not that, it's called knowledge. And so Kierkegaard essentially believed that what faith is all the way down is risk. I could be wrong. That's why, and I don't want to be misheard on this, epistemologically, I am an agnostic. <coughs> Existentially and theologically, I'm a theist. But epistemologically, I'm an agnostic. I don't think that answer is available in a definitive way. Mm. And in many ways, now, I want to say, as a philosopher, I think all the time that that's a good thing. As a person walking through the world trying to make meaning, sometimes I'd like a little more certainty. Mm -hmm. Most of the time. Right? Faith... Because doubt is not easy. The kind of doubt I'm talking about is not like, oh yeah, 98% sure. I'm talking about there being days when you walk through the world and you think, man, this is just, this is just what there is, you know? Like, it's all molecules in motion. Um, 
But I want to say something else about where that leads that has become more and more important to me again as I've gotten older. What the reality of doubt makes possible is for religious people to overcome their condescension towards people who are not religious. Mm. One of the things that drives me crazy in the Jewish world about organizations that pride themselves on what they call hiruv, the biblical Hebrew person may want to say, it's keruv, by the way, but anyway, um, the, 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 the problem of so much of that mode is essentially I come knowing the entirety of the truth and I seek to present it to you and at the end of the day, my hope is that you'll be just like me. Mm. And by the way, evangelical Christians do a lot of kiruv, more than Jews, <laughs> right? So true. <laughs> and, and at the end of the day, I think that to be a theologian in this day and age, you have to be able to imagine secularity from the inside. Mm. And when you can imagine secularity from the inside, you can't talk down to people anymore. I don't talk down to people who are not religious. I try to learn from them. And in a good conversation where our full humanity is there, I hope they also learn from me. Now, it's not only religious people who do this, right? If you want to experience, you know, what it means to be a bully, pick up Richard Dawkins' The God Delusion. Right? In other words, there, there are non-religious versions of that where basically you think what I think or you're an imbecile. But it seems to me that if we have some epistemological humility, that is some humility about what we can and can't know, then we can actually encounter people and realize we have different ways of seeing the world. And maybe part of what it means to have the humility of realizing I'm flesh and blood is to know that we're still not going to agree at the end of that conversation, and it's okay. Because your salvation is actually not my problem. Your dignity is, your salvation is not. I'm using a consciously Christian word, obviously, right? You know, that's a lot. Your dignity is in part my responsibility. But that you have to think what I think? I mean, by the way, if you were me, I don't know what I think half the time, let alone am I trying to, I'm going to sell you on having 13 opinions on every issue. I'm not, I'm not invested in that. I'm invested in the possibility of conversation, which I think epistemological humility makes possible in a whole different way. Well, Shai said a lot of the things I wanted to say, so <laughs> I think what I will do is uh, give a quote that means a lot to me and then tell a story. The quote oh, comes. Kind of rabbi? I know. Can you believe it? <laughs> You're rubbing off on me here. <laughs> quote uh, from a, a 20th century Protestant theologian named Paul Tillich. Paul Tillich says, uh, "Faith or doubt isn't the opposite of faith. Doubt is an element of faith. Doubt isn't the opposite of faith. It's an element of faith." And I think what he's trying to say there is that. He's contrasting what I said earlier, the absolute certainty sort of an idea, that faith itself has questions, has doubts, and uh, that's important. I also, however, want to emphasize the idea that, um, and you mentioned believing. Uh, One of the problems I have with the word faith is it's not a very good verb. (coughs) We don't say faithing or something like that. Uh, um, But believing is this active verb. It's this risk-taking. 
And a story that uh, I heard as a kid that is actually, I've been told, is a true story, illustrates well this idea of believing as taking a risk, as not just some sort of mental assent, but acting, using your life to orient yourself in the world in some way. It's the story of a tightrope walker who decided to, as a publicity stunt, stretch a a rope across Niagara Falls and walk across the rope on Niagara Falls. This is in the teens, apparently. And so this guy, you know, figures it all out. I don't know exactly how he did it. Probably brought it down through the river. But anyway, he gets his rope strapped across Niagara Falls. And one morning he gets up, gets up on that rope and starts to walk across the rope to the other side. Now, of course, people see him out there and a crowd starts to form on the other side of the river. He makes it across. The little crowd claps, goes nuts. Yay! And he silences them. He says, how many people here believe that I could put a wheelbarrow up here on the rope with me and go all the way back to the other side of the falls? They go, yeah, whatever they do in the 1910s. Hey, hey, here, here, whatever it is. <laughs> but we believe. So he has, of course, has a wheelbarrow. They're ready to go. He gets it up on the rope and begins to walk across the rope to the other side of Niagara Falls. Well, you can imagine that by now, there's a pretty big-sized crowd on the other side. They're seeing this incredible thing happen, and he makes it to the other side. I mean, there's cameras flashing. Everybody's cheering takes him quite a while to calm them down and he finally calms them down he says how many people here believe that I could put some big rocks in my wheelbarrow and take it all the way back across the falls yeah here here we believe go for it he gets the rocks up and begins going back across the falls he makes it to the other side with the rocks in the wheelbarrow chucks the rocks out of the wheelbarrow everybody's going nuts calms them down and looks at the crowd and says this, how many people here believe that I could put a human being in my wheelbarrow and take them back across the falls? Yeah, we believe. He said, who here will volunteer? (laughs) In that moment, their assent in their minds was yes, but they weren't willing to put their life on the line. Faith is more than just having the things figured out in your head where it's 5149 or whatever it is you want to understand of the story. It's also about what we do in response with our lives, taking that risk, saying yes, actively responding to what we think is the right thing to do, the call of God, whatever language you want to use, but saying and putting our faith into action, believing. Um, I want to remind everyone again that you have cards if you want to write questions and invite you to raise the card up and someone will come in and collect the questions. Um, um, I want to ask you, Tom, you are a prominent figure in a Christian theological movement known as open theism. And Shai, you, you said when we were speaking earlier that you could see yourself as a Jewish open theist. Um, so I would love to first, Tom, give you a chance to tell us what is open theism, and then, Shai, maybe you can tell us uh, a response of what Jewish open theism might mean to you. So open theism, the phrase 
actually emerged from the minds of some evangelicals who probably think and act differently than most evangelicals you know. Let me begin there. Since in this political realm, what you think of an evangelical doesn't fit these folks very well. The idea of open theism is that there is a God. God is active in the world. God is in relationship with us such that what God influences us and we influence God. And God is timeful. God is not the timeless being outside looking in from a distance, but God is actually in the flow of time so that the past is past for God and the future is really future for God. And what makes open theology or open theism so unique, especially in the evangelical world, and actually more broadly speaking, given some of the references we made to philosophy and, and its influence, open theists believe that God knows everything that can be known, but God cannot know the future. God knows all the possibilities for the future, but God can't know the actual future because the actual future doesn't yet exist. God knows the past, the present, and the possible future, but God doesn't have what in Christian circles we call foreknowledge. Illustration that I like to use on this is, to, is one that actually John Calvin, a famous Christian theologian, used to describe his view of God. He said, God's knowledge of the world is kind of like a person who climbs to the tallest part of a tower in a city and looks down and sees a parade in the streets below. From this high exalted position, God can see the beginning of the parade and the end of, of the parade. Just like, according to Calvin, God can see all of history, the beginning and the end, all in one glance. Open theists say that's the wrong way to look at it. That instead of thinking of God as up in the tower, looking down at history all at once, that God is a part of the flow of history. God is in the parade, to use my example here. Now, there are lots of other subtle uh, emphases, including emphasis upon divine love, but that's the general idea of what open theism is. Shai? Um, I mean, I actually... I, I, I mainly agree with that. I mean, there's no, at the moment, advocates of Jewish open theology because there are very few advocates of Jewish any theology. <laughs> um, um, I, I would say that, um, I, I want to say a, a, maybe a couple of things about this, which is, um, to me, the central meaning of open theism is that God takes risks. Mm. God takes risks. And that creating a world and creating people means that God takes risks and can be disappointed. Mm -hmm. One of the reasons that in the moments when I believe in God, I believe this, is that that is, seems to me to be the very heart of what Tanakh teaches us about God. Mm. To believe that God is a perfect being who knows the future is not to read Tanakh, or not to let Tanakh speak in its own terms. Okay? Mm. So, um, so God takes risks. And one dimension of that 
I think there are others, but I'll just say mention one, and then we can we can move on. One dimension of that is that human freedom is real right. and hugely consequential. Right. And although philosophers these days, the sort of regnant orthodoxy in philosophy is to you know question the reality of human freedom, I would at least for this moment at least appeal to our most basic intuitions and experiences of the world, which is that human freedom is huge and hugely mm. consequential. And if we believe in a God who creates human beings with the dignity of agency, right, the capacity to act in the world, God has to take risks because yeah. that's what it means to love another. Yeah. The same way, by the way, that when I raise my child, I cannot expect my child to be a replica of me. That would make me not a parent, but a narcissist, mm. right? That is the imagination that my child isn't just an extension of my will, but that's not what my child is. My child is another human being. And in order to make space for my child to be him or herself, I have to allow his or her freedom to be consequential. Mm -hmm. I may mm -hmm. not always like where he or she ends up, mm -hmm. but her freedom is consequential. Can I, can I add something to that? I really like that. I'm glad, glad you brought in the risk factor and the freedom factor. And just real quick, one may, I sometimes like to describe open theology versus what we might call classical or conventional theology, is to contrast open theology as seeing life as an adventure and kind of the more standard or classical theology as seeing life as a blueprint. The blueprint has already been decided. It's already been predetermined. And it's hard to really imagine that there's any genuine freedom or risk in a blueprint model. But the adventure model is like Lewis and Clark leaving St. Louis and heading out west my direction in Idaho. They're not sure what's going to happen. They may take some turns that don't make sense. But this is a risk that has certain kind of rewards and a certain kind of zest for life that I think is at the heart of open theism. So I want to focus us in on the idea of love, which you've both spoken about in more than one question already. <laughs> um, but, but I think for both of you, love seems to be an obvious and inherent part of questions of faith and doubt and of theology in general. And I don't know that that's inherently obvious to, to everyone in the world, or maybe even to everyone in this room. So I, I would love to give each of you a chance to talk about the role of love in your theology and, and maybe to, to push you to do some of that defining that Chai was saying philosophy mm -hmm. helps us do of, of asking what is love and what function is it playing in your theology? Um, so l l let me start with a little bit of a kind of um, a set of sentences that articulate um, Jewish theology as I understand it. The first is that God loves human beings. As no less a figure than Rabbi Akiva says, Chaviva Dam Beloved, precious, is the human being who was created in the image of God. That sentence is enormously important for another reason. It does not just claim that God loves human beings but it claims that God loves human beings before and independent of anything we ever do or accomplish in the world. Mm. God loves us simply because we're human. Mm -hmm. What that means, and this is the very heart of my understanding of my work as I get to use the word a theologian and a teacher, is the spiritual life is not an attempt to earn God's love. It mm. is an attempt to live up to it. Right. 
Spiritual life is an attempt to live up to the reality of God's love. Um, on another occasion, maybe in a few weeks, I'll get to talk about why this language has become so attenuated among so many Jews. Um, now, so God loves human beings. If I had more time, I would talk about another claim that the Bible makes, which makes Jews on the Upper West Side more nervous. God loves some people more than others. That's a hard sell on the West Side, and yet if you want to wrestle with Tanakh, you have to wrestle with that idea. I just want to say the following, at least for now. Nowhere in Tanakh is it remotely considered the possibility that God loving the Jewish people means that God does not love everyone else also. Hmm. In fact, Genesis goes out of its way in the very first moment after the covenant with Abraham is firmly established to tell us about the suffering of an Egyptian woman who is unseen by her Israelite masters who thinks she has no name. Then an angel of God appears to her and in an incredibly moving moment, the very first word he says to her is Hagar. And she says, what is your name, God? You are the God who sees me. Atael Roi. The only person in the Hebrew Bible who names God. God who sees the Egyptian slave woman. Um, now, Jewish theology makes a demand, which is that God's love ought to be reciprocated. That is the structure of our twice daily prayers. With vast love have you loved us. And you should love the Lord your God. Right? God loves us and we are bidden to attempt to reciprocate. But Jewish theology and biblical theology goes further than that. In response to God's love, we are not asked only to love God back, but to love each other. Hence the mandate to love your neighbor as yourself. God loves us, which enables us to be lovers ourselves. And if that sounds abstract, think about people you know who have not yet begun to heal from deep experiences of being unloved and how hard it can be to discover in oneself mm. the capacity to love. God's love empowers our love. Mm -hmm. But the Bible takes one more step. And with this I'll stop, although I could talk about this for the rest of my life. Um, <laughs> I, yeah. <laughs> the Bible insists not only that I must love my fellow member of the covenant, that's the meaning of reya in Biblical Hebrew. But the Bible makes this radically revolutionary claim just 15 verses later, which is that I must also love the ger, the stranger, mm. which essentially means the immigrant. A ger in Biblical Hebrew is a person who is not part of the socioeconomic, sorry, is not part of the kin group and is therefore socioeconomically vulnerable, vulnerable to exploitation. And the Torah tells me Love the stranger. Love the immigrant. Love the one who arrives and is vulnerable to your power. It's a verse to meditate on this week. Um, now, I want to say one other thing about this, which is the concern for the well-being of widows and orphans is found all over the ancient Near East. All over the ancient Near East, 
texts talk about how the king is obligated to look after the well-being of widows and orphans. The Torah makes two extremely dramatic moves. One is that it democratizes moral responsibility. It says not only is the king responsible for the well-being of widows and orphans, but you and I are. You and I are responsible for the most vulnerable members of society who can be hurt and degraded by people in power. And more than that, the Torah introduces into the world, and as far as we know, there is no precedent for this anywhere in the ancient Near East, the expansion of the category from widows and orphans to widows and orphans and immigrants. There is no precedent in the ancient Near East for the love of the ger other than Vayikra and Devarim. That's powerful stuff. Thanks, Shai. I was trying to figure out what I was going to say here because uh, love is the reason I believe in God. I couldn't be a believer if I didn't think love is at the heart of who God is. Um, and my whole life and my whole career as a scholar revolves around the issues of love, either directly or indirectly. Um, almost all the books that I've written have to do with love. I have a whole book called Defining Love. I mean, that uh, sounds boring, but I'm trying to figure out what love is all about. In fact, the people, at, the students at my institution like to kiddingly call me Dr. Love, which I think... <laughs> As long as it's not Dr. Ruth or something like that, that's good. Um, I think it's important to say, I'll start that sentence over. In my view, love should be understood in this kind of way. Love is an intentional act in response to God and others to promote overall well-being. An intentional act in response or in relation with others to promote overall well-being. And that last part of love is really important, this promoting of well-being that you talked about so eloquently. This is important because so often people think and use the word love to mean desire or to like or to approve of. I think sometimes love is desiring and liking and approving of, but not always. So that... As many of you know, one part of the Christian tradition is not only loving the stranger and the orphan, but also loving one's enemies. Enemies are folks you may not like at all, probably don't like. But if love is about acting for the well-being of others, you can actually act for the well-being of your enemies. So in the present situation, I can actually stand and say... I love Donald Trump. It doesn't mean I like what he's done. It doesn't mean that I approve of the direction I think he might take the country. It means that even though there's lots of things I don't like about him, I want to act for his well-being. And in doing so, I think, in acting for his well-being, it also might be the well-being of the whole, the common good, those in addition to him. That's how radical I think this love needs to be. 
That means I think God is a God who acts for the overall well-being, the common good, and I want to imitate God in that kind of action. I could go on and on about this. Let me, let me close with this. There's this saying in the New Testament that says we should not repay evil with evil, but we should repay evil with good. And out of that sentiment, the language of forgiveness emerges. I personally, in the last couple of years of my life, have gone through some really painful things. I have been forced out of my position in a very public way of my university. My family, my wife especially, there was a period where she cried every single day for about a month and a half. Incredible pain. I and most people I know believe I was treated wrongly. Love calls me to act for the good of even those who do harm to me. Forgiveness in my understanding, doesn't mean that I approve of what happened. It doesn't mean that I decide no consequences should come to the harm doer. It means that I am going to act for the good of the other, even though the other has not acted for my good. That, in my view, at least for me, is the hardest kind of love to express. But I think that's the kind of love that God models for us when we do not do what is good in relation to God and others. I'm, I'm, I'm so struck that each of you answered the question of what is love and what is the role of love in theology with an answer that talked about action and what, <laughs> how we behave and what we do, which is not how I expected. <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's, I think it doesn't necessarily seem obvious that your theology and how you behave necessarily are, are so intertwined. Mm. So I would love to hear if either of you want to reflect before I have some, I have some hard and harder questions that you can choose from. <laughs> um, but to hear if you want to reflect on that relationship between theology, you know, belief and action. Mm. Okay, so l let me say two things about this for now. W one is that as I understand love in Biblical Hebrew, it is simultaneously an emotion and a commitment to action. Mm, mm, mm -hmm. Emotions alone can be cheap. I have compassion for those who are vulnerable in our society. Now what's for breakfast? Mm. Emotions alone can be cheap. Commitments to act alone can be caricatures of what religion demands of us. In the language of the rabbinic tradition, God demands, the merciful one demands our hearts. So love, as I understand it, is about a commitment to emotion manifested as action, to inwardness manifested as outwardness. Now, as to how theology leads to action, um, one of my favorite texts in the rabbinic tradition is a, um, a line in Midrash Sifrei, the rabbinic halachic commentary in the book of Deuteronomy. The line is this. This is the Sifrei on Parashat Ekev. I'll recite it in Hebrew and then translate. 
Ritzoncha lehakir et mishamar olam. Is it your desire to know, to have a relationship with the one who spoke and the world came into being? Limod agada. Study agada. Things beyond the realm of law. Shemitochkach atabala kiret mishamar olam. Because through doing that, you will come to know the one who spoke and the world came into being. Now, think for a second. The question was asked, do you want to know God? And the answer was given, great. Study theological texts and you'll know God. Except that the text doesn't end with what I just said. Rather, it says, Shemitochkach atabala kiret mishamar olam. Because through the study of Agadah, you will come to know the one who spoke and the world came into being, and you will cleave to God's ways. Hmm. Which, in rabbinic tradition, just about always means you will perform acts of love in the world. Mm-hmm. Knowledge of God that is not manifested as love in the world is not knowledge of God. It's knowledge of an idol. It's knowledge of a projection of myself. Deuteronomy chapter 10 describes God as loving the stranger. And the immediate next verse is, You too must love the stranger. Why? Because if you love God, you must spend your life learning to love those whom God loves. Mm, yeah. That is what it means to have a spiritual life. Everything else is commentary. You love God. You love those whom God loves. Mm-hmm. And as I said a few minutes ago, Rabbi Akiva tells us that God loves every human being. So I strive to love. Now, obviously, what it means to love every human being is not the same thing as what it means to love my wife or my daughter. Mm-hmm. Right? And we have to struggle with exactly what is the texture of the love that is spoken of here. Right. But at minimum, I think it means this is in itself an enormously tall order. Investment in the well-being of others. Because I can't worship God and say, I worship you, but as for love, I'll decide who I like. Or worse than that, as many of you have heard me say many times, the ultimate failure in the spiritual life, marshalling God to bolster all of my hatreds. Right? Isn't it convenient when God hates all the people I don't like? That is the Yetzer Hara, that is the evil inclination in every religious tradition. Not only do I dislike you, it's a metaphysical truth that you're insufferable. (laughs) And what it means to worship a God of love is to live with the realization that God loves people I don't like. Mm -hmm. God loves people I don't like. Now, in Jewish theology, does that mean love my enemies? Jewish theology on this question is much more complicated. And this is a place where I think that there's a fascinating discussion to be had Mm. about where Jewish ethics is much more ambivalent about this question. Mm. I think there's a tremendous anxiety that loving one's enemies can lead to overlooking their evil. Mm. Um, On the other hand, there's a danger in that too, which is if I hate all my enemies, I might end up legitimating doing to them the very things I can't stand about what they do. (laughs) Right? This is very hard stuff. Very hard stuff. Wow, that's great stuff. Thank you. Um, I think I'll just answer quickly since you re- referred to some since Jewish texts. Since I for a long time. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, since you referred to the Jewish text, I think I'll answer from something from the New Testament that is really important to me along this 
along these lines. Uh, the Apostle Paul is writing to a church in the city of Ephesus. And after talking about what kind of people they ought to be, putting aside certain negative uh, vices and taking on certain positive virtues, he concludes by saying this. And I think this is so profound, so wild. Imitate God as dearly beloved children and live a life of love. Imitate God as beloved children, as those who are loved by God, and live a life of love. Imitate God. I don't think we can imitate God by being omnipresent, almighty, everlasting, etc., omniscient. But I do think we can love analogously to how God loves. We can will the good of the other, promote well-being. And we can do that, according to the Christian tradition, we can love because God first loved us and empowers us to love. And what that means is living life, moment by moment, day by day, trying to figure out what it means to love. Now, in the Christian tradition, we looked as our primary example to Jesus Christ. But there are obviously also others who live lives of love. There are other exemplars. But as I think about what it means to love like God, I think of that passage, to actually imitate God's love. Thanks. So you both gave me permission before to give you even the really hard questions in the room. <laughs> I don't <So>. remember that. <laughs> <laughs> that conversation never happened. <laughs> I think we said you're going to answer those. <laughs> so, uh, so this person writes, if some universal moral code gives us proof of God's existence, how is it that there is such a divide in basic views of morality in this country? And in fact, most religious people voted for Trump. <laughs> <laughs> Who wants to take it first? <laughs> I'll read it one more time. <laughs> I can jump in, I suppose. It's one thing to say that there is a universal code of morality, or I would prefer to call it, say this. We all have basic moral intuitions. But just because we all have basic moral intuitions doesn't mean that those then get fleshed out in the exact same way. Some of my friends think abortion in all forms are wrong. Others of my friends think there's room for abortion. This is a debate. It's not like one person is more morally mature than the other, at least in most instances. So we can all have this basic sense of right and wrong. This all, we can all have this sense that we ought to love, but have differences of opinion on what love exactly looks like, what morals exactly play out in how we live in the world. Um, I mean, I agree with that um, strongly. I would only add that... Um, Knowing that there are moral demands upon me does not guarantee that I act upon them or place <laughs> them at the top of my agenda. Sure, yeah. Um, in other words, I don't honestly find that question, for me, that question is not a theological challenge so much as it's a pedagogical challenge, hmm. which is how do we, as parents, as teachers, as citizens, um, push ourselves to constantly put moral obligation at the center of our interpersonal universe, center of our religious universe, center of our political universe. Um, it's also important to say 
that you can have certain moral commitments and disagree about the policies by which you accomplish those goals. Right, right. Something that is almost, that is very frequently forgotten by, only in America, by people on the right and the left. <laughs> right? It is forgotten all the time, right? The assumption that not only are my moral commitments grounded in God, but in fact, every policy prescription I have is grounded in God. <laughs> right? Um, one of the things that, from my perspective, made this election so different than any election that I've seen in my lifetime is that it seemed to me that one of the primary people running for office, the policy disagreements were not the issue, although they were real. The issue was, does one make an ideology out of belittling the weak? Mm. The Torah loves the weak. Mm -hmm. You can't belittle the weak. There's no greater antithesis to a commitment to the Hebrew Bible than belittling people who are weak. Mm. Belittling them. Right? Just like, sit with that for a moment. So, but I want to be clear, right? It's been very important to me all along to say, I would never have said the things I've said over the last 16 months about Mitt Romney or George W. Bush, with whom I disagreed on many things, right? I'm a swinging Democrat, sometimes a moderate Democrat, sometimes a more left, it depends on what issues. I disagreed with George W. Bush. I think George W. Bush, you know, you want to talk about like causing catastrophe in the world? The Iraq war was a good example of that. The implications remain catastrophic, right? I would never speak about George Bush or any other Republican. This is a different thing. This is a different thing. Um, and that thing is about, right, simply believing that the fundamental commitment to the vulnerable is not only not a value, but is risible. Hmm. Good. No, I'm, I'm. Um, I want to ask a question that was submitted here because it was also basically the question at the top of our flyer, so I feel uh. like um, we have an obligation to, to offer some answer, which is, can we believe in a God of love in a world of suffering? Yeah, so this is one of one of the things that I I I wrote a book that came out a year ago and the last year I've probably done fifty presentations on this subject. So in two minutes I'm gonna give you my particular answer, all right? <laughs> I think we can believe in God, who is a God of love. However, I think that we need to rethink God's power. I think we have to have a reconception of what God can and can't do. Now, a lot of people believe that God is not a controlling God in the sense that God doesn't control everything that happens in the world. But they think that perhaps on occasion, God will reach in and fiddle with things, you know, do a miracle here and there, or make sure this thing happens by controlling it. Or God is generally self-limited, but occasionally acts in a controlling way. The problem with thinking of that, of course, is that once something bad happens, you say, well, wasn't that bad enough for God to intervene and fiddle with that and fix that? I mean, if you've got a God who could be controlling, then you have to ask the question, why doesn't God control the things that are genuinely evil in the world? My proposal, which again, I'm just speaking for myself, not anyone in particular, not Hadar or anyone like that, <laughs> is this. God's love is such that God necessarily gives freedom and agency and self-organization to the world. And God 
can't control others. Not just won't, as if God could and decides not to. God actually cannot, because it's God's very nature. It's not like some sort of external force is controlling God. And it's also not that God is making some free, voluntary decision not to intervene and fiddle and fix things. It's that God's very nature is such that God is love and God necessarily gives existence, freedom, and agency depending on the complexity of the creatures in the world. And that means that God cannot prevent genuine evil. I know that may be... You're, you're ready to jump in already. <laughs> yeah, we've got to stick with our Why don't you write it on a piece of paper and hand it on in here? No, I'm going to cut you off and not let you. Sorry, sorry. (laughs) Um, It's a really hard, I mean, obviously, I I, I don't know that there's a harder question for a believer. Look, let me say a couple things about this, I guess. One is, is it possible to believe in a God of love in a world of suffering? Yes, it's possible. And one should not be cavalier about it. And one should acknowledge that there are there is a degree and an immensity of suffering that is such that it is totally understandable why some people don't believe. Sure. And I would say something else. It is actually totally understandable why some of us who profess to believe don't believe all the time. Yeah. Many years ago, I heard my teacher, Yitz Greenberg, say in a public speech, the difference between an atheist and a theist is not how much, but how often. <laughs> a line that has, as I, you know, and over the last 25 years, has become more and more kind of resonant for me. It's not how much, but how often. Now, I want to maybe take a minute to come at that question from a different angle than Tom did, Um, which is that it seems to me that we are all, if we take both God and the world seriously, which for Judaism you have to do because we believe in a God who takes the world seriously. Mm -hmm. So if we take both God and the world seriously, we have no choice but to live in the chasm between a theological claim that human dignity is real and that it matters and the empirical experience that that's just not true. And we have to live inside that chasm, in that space, which is excruciating. It is is very tempting either to look away from the world and say, I'll take my theology in some (laughs) internal place, or to look at the world and say, what, you're going to talk about God? Are you out of your mind? <laughs> and I think what Jewish spirituality asks us to do is instead to live inside that chasm, that yawning abyss between a theological claim about human life and human dignity that matters on the one hand, and the fact that human dignity is trodden and trampled upon on every corner of the universe in which we live. And so that what it means to serve God is at least in part to live in such a way that aspires to close that gap even a little. To live our lives in ways that are worthy of the God we profess to believe in. I have really, I I will say this more and more, you know, with every passing year this gets stronger stronger and stronger for me, I have largely lost interest in whether people tell me they believe in God. First of all, I want to know what God they believe in. Second of all, I want to know whether that God asks them to live lives of hate or lives of love. Mm. I want to know whether that God pushes them to care about people they otherwise might not. Mm. Do you believe in God? It's like, it's become a boring question to me. 
What does the God you profess to believe in ask of you? What does it mean about how you speak to your child when you're feeling frustrated and hurt? What does it mean about how you speak to people over whom you have power? Are the people who work for you afraid of you? So this goes back, Avi, to something you asked a little while ago. How does theology translate into action? It translates ideally into every action I take. If I believe in a God who affirms Tzelem Elohim, who affirms the claim that human beings are created in the image of God, everything I do, everything I am in the world is shaped by that claim or in that moment I am guilty of, to use another word that is hard on the Upper West Side, sin. Mm. Every time I fail to see you as fully human, that is a failure on my part. It is a sin in theological terms. Mm. Because the God I believe in asks something else of me. That's the story of Hagar again. See those whom no one else sees. Regard the unregarded. See the person who lies in his own urine in the richest city in the history of the world. See that person. That's what it means to have a theology. That's really hard. Mm. It's really hard. Because if you take it seriously, you feel like you fail all the time. And you know what? You do, because you're flesh and blood. But we also believe in a God of forgiveness and repentance who says, you know what's amazing about this? Tomorrow you'll try again. Hmm. That's That's great stuff. Um, Trying to be cognizant of the time. I think I want to end with this question. Um, You both talked about a God that loves us and knowing that God loves us and then how that translates. Um, so, so the question is, how should I go about knowing, really knowing in my guts and in my brain that God loves me? My goodness. Last week I got an email. I did a Facebook Live thing and a bunch of people got on there that of course I didn't know because on Facebook Live you start the thing and people can share it and it goes all beyond your friends and all that sort of thing. I got it goes an, beyond your 5,000 friends. <laughs> <laughs> um, I got an email from a woman in Colorado who saw me do this thing on, on the problem of evil. She said, I grew up Catholic. I'm not in church anymore, but I make my son go to the Methodist church down the street. He, in the last year, we've discovered, has been sexually abused by a boy at school. She says, I don't feel like God's around at all. How can I have that feeling? How can I get that back? My goodness, I don't have a very good answer for that. You know, she heard my explanation for why God not only didn't cause the abuse her son went through, but also, in my view, God doesn't even allow it or shouldn't be charged with allowing it. But she wanted to have a sense of God's presence in her life. So the first question I asked her was, and this is not the final solution, but I think you might, the Jewish tradition might uh, really resonate with this. I ask her this, are you a part of a loving community of people? I said, I believe God is present throughout all creation. But the most profound moments in my life have often been when I've received love from others in the community. 
and believe that God inspired that love in them to love me. Are you a part of a loving community? She said, no, I'm not. I said, why don't you start to begin to find that? Not every church or synagogue or wherever you go is going to be filled with people who exude that kind of love. So, you know, you can church hop for a while. Find a group of people who are going to have that kind of warmth that you believe God inspires in them. Second thing I said is this. Um, do you get out and away from the rat race of life very much? I said, I tell you what I do. I'm in Idaho. I go hiking. I go out into the wilderness. I get away from people, which sounds like the opposite of what I earlier said. I said, I get away from people because sometimes in those moments, when I'm in the majesty and wonder and beauty of creation, I have the kinds of experiences that I think you're trying to have in your life. So maybe in addition to finding a warm, loving community of fellow believers, you also ought to figure out in your own life, whether it means going out into the natural world, times for you to withdraw, to get away, to find some kind of seclusion, to sit at peace, thinking about the world, pondering your thoughts and meditation, something different to get out of what life has been at the moment. And I concluded with this. I can't guarantee you that either one of those will give you that sense of God that you're looking for. But in my own life, those have been some of the most profound moments, experiences of God that I've felt, in, including God's love for me. I just want to confess, I find this question really hard, enormously challenging spiritually. Um, so I, I want to say something that I think is similar to what Tom said, but maybe sort of coming at it from a slightly different angle. Our experience of God's love, at first at least, almost always, is mediated by human love. Right. It is very hard, for example, to say to a child who has been abused, mistreated, unloved, not seen by people around him or her, oh, but you know what? God loves you. Because... For that person in that moment, that's just a sort of like cognitive claim. But they don't know what you mean. Now, there are probably people who have certain antenna that they do know what you mean. But I don't think we're all, we're certainly not all born with the same level of antenna in that way. <laughs> I've been saying to my wife lately, when I hear Joey Weisenberg sing, I know I am not plugged into the place he's plugged into. Hmm. I want that. Mm. I don't naturally have that. That's work for me. Mm -hmm. um, so we're not all exactly that. But that, you know, it turns the mandate around in a really interesting way. What, is, what does a Jewish theology of parenting look like? Where one of our central tasks is to make it plausible to our children that God loves them. How do you fathom that? And I say this all the time when I teach day school teachers, camp directors, one of the central meanings of your job is to create pockets in the world where children know they are loved. And that's not up for negotiation. 
that a child who graduates your school has had some experience of what it means to know that they matter and that they are loved. Even and perhaps especially if at home that's not the message they unequivocally get. Mm -hmm. Now what that enables I think is another component which is to tell our kids that God loves them. Now, I'm going to tell you something that makes me in many Jewish settings these days sound like a lunatic, <laughs> which is I sometimes say to my kids before they go to bed, sorry, this has been a very emotional week. Mm -hmm. I want you to know that your father loves you more than I can even begin to imagine or explain. Mm. But there's something else you need to know. That as much as I love you, God loves you so much more than that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I want to explain to you why I say that to them. First of all, I want them to inhabit that theological truth. But second of all, mm -hmm. I know, I know that there will be moments when because I'm a flesh and blood human being with my own sufferings and my own limits and my own confusions, mm. I will let them down. Mm -hmm. I want them to know in the moments when they experience for me that my love is conditional, that there is somewhere else they can turn for a love that is not. Mm. Yeah. If I make you feel that you are less than worthy of my love because you didn't get into the university that I wished I got into, <laughs> <laughs> God is so much more loving than I could ever be. Mm -hmm. yeah. There is a love that loves you without condition. I aspire to embody that, but I will never embody that fully because I'm a person and God is not. Mm. This is one of the reasons why I am totally unimpressed with the argument that talking about God's love is anthropomorphism. Yeah. You show me the human being who's capable of loving in that way. This is what Heschel means when he says, when we love a human being, it is theomorphism. Mm -hmm. When God loves people, it is not anthropomorphism. Mm -hmm. To say that is not to understand what love is at all, or who God is. Mm -hmm. um, and this is hard. Because as those of us who have had experiences of less than wonderful parenting, mm -hmm. can attest, believing that anyone loves you can be a spiritual journey of a lifetime. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Believing that you're worthy of love can be the spiritual journey of a lifetime. Which is why I will return to what I said about why Jewish schools, Christian schools, and in a more secular idiom, I'd say public schools too, right? There are other ways to communicate this, even if you don't use that language. There should be some place where a kid who does not get an unequivocal message of love at home gets that unequivocal message. Mm, yeah. And a kid who feels unseen knows that she is seen. That when we fail to see certain human beings, that is about our limitations, not about God's. Mm -hmm. All the people that we don't see, the way white people are tempted not to see black people, we, you know, the way men are not, let's say, always skilled at seeing women as fully human, the way almost no one I know fully sees the disabled, what does it mean to know that God sees the people I don't yet see? Mm. That's a spiritual life. To try and step into and embody that. I, I, I want to just maybe close by saying this. You know, in, in, in Ashrei has this amazing line. Um, 
Tov Adonai lakol v'rachamav al kol masav, right? God is good to all, and God's mercy is upon all God's creatures. There is a passage in Breshit Rabbah, Rabbinic Midrash of Breshit, that reads that totally differently in ways that I, I honestly stumbled upon this Midrash a year and a half ago, and it, it, it sits in a very like, precious place for me. That line is understood. Tov Adonai lakol, God is good to everyone. Rachamav al kol masav does not mean God is merciful um, to all but that God has shared of God's capacity for mercy with all. You are capable of love. That's what it means to be loved by God. You are capable of love. Mm. What a message for America in the wake of the apocalypse. <laughs> you are capable of love. Mm-hmm. Now again, that, I, I, I just want to say, that's not a policy prescription. <laughs> right? I'm against that form of dogmatism. But you are capable of love, and you are capable of standing for love. Mm-hmm. And standing for love, by the way, is not always pretty. Sometimes standing for love involves political resistance. Right. Sometimes standing for love requires saying, I love the world so much that I will not tolerate its injustices. Mm-hmm. Sometimes being committed to love means I will put my body on the line for the sake of other people. Because that's what it means to believe in a God of love who calls me to love, which is, after all, what Tanakh is about. That's worthy of clapping for, I think. I want to thank you both so much for your thoughtfulness, but for your honesty. It honestly feels a little irresponsible to end this conversation because there are so many questions that we need to address. Mm. But it is past 9 o'clock, so <laughs> even as irresponsible as it is, we're going to do it. <laughs> that was awesome. You were excellent. Thank you. Uh, I just wanted to, again, thank uh, Rabbi Held and Professor Ward and Rabbi Hillip for this thoughtful and loving discussion. Uh, I also wanted to just echo a thank you that was made earlier to the Samuel Bronfman Foundation for helping us to make this possible.